Well, why do you want to go to heaven? To see loved ones, family, and friends? To escape hell, eternal punishment for your sin? To enjoy eternal life with no more sickness, sorrow, and suffering? To spend eternity reveling in the new creation with all its glory and grandeur? To possess everything you've ever wanted or dreamed of? Why do you want to go to heaven? Or to sharpen the question even further, would you still desire heaven if all those things were granted to you but God was not there. No hell, no suffering, no tears, an eternity of discovering the new creation, loved ones all together, possessing everything, but no Jesus. Would you be satisfied with that heaven? Now, I want that question to linger in the back of your minds as we make our way through our text tonight before coming back to it at the end. And so open your Bibles now to Exodus chapter 32. That's where we're at tonight, Exodus chapter 32. It's really chapters 32 through 34. Last week we looked at chapters 25 to 31, which Pastor Michael Walker opened to us wonderfully, showing how the instructions for the tabernacle ultimately highlight God's desire to be with his people. Now what you may not remember, though, is that those seven chapters took place while Moses was still on Mount Sinai. In other words, the narrative has not progressed, the storyline has not progressed since the end of chapter 24. Chapter 24 recounted the confirmation of the covenant between God and Israel, which is a real high point in the book. There, Moses relates the stipulations of the covenant, and the people respond by promising their obedience. And then Moses goes up the mountain. Listen to the end of chapter 24. Then Moses went up the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. It's a long time. Now, notice how the storyline picks up again at the beginning of chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron. And it goes on. In resuming the narrative, chapter 32 provides a stunning and yes, depressing contrast to the beautiful and hope-filled moment of chapter 24. It recounts the infamous incident of the golden calf, one of the most widely known stories in the Bible, and perhaps the classic example of the ancient proverb, when the cat's away, the mice will play. But chapter 32 does not stand alone. 
It belongs with chapters 33 and 34, which then together form one main narrative arc. And despite the many twists and turns in these chapters, and there are some twists and turns, the main arc is clear. First, the people rebel. Then Moses intercedes on their behalf. And finally, the covenant is renewed and they're restored. Or to simplify it even further, we could say rebellion, intercession, restoration. That's the main narrative arc of these three chapters. Rebellion, intercession, and restoration. And though I clearly cannot cover everything in these chapters in one sermon, they are so important to the book of Exodus and, I would argue, to the structure of biblical theology as a whole that I'm going to actually take the time tonight to read the whole unit so that you can see for yourself this trajectory and all the details that are there in the text because we won't have time to, for me to exposit or explain all the details, but I still want you to see them. And so, hope you have your Bible. If you don't have your Bible or you don't have a phone that has a Bible, Now's a good time to get to know a neighbor and share with them so you can follow along. It is a long text, but I think it's important for us to hear. So let's read it. Exodus chapters 32 to 34. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses... The man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self 
and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. And then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides. On the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. And so they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. It kind of sounds like something my children would say. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you, Kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. 
The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. And Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people... But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. 
Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after other gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited... You eat of his sacrifice and you take of their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month Abib. For in the month Abib you came out from Egypt. All that opened the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel, for I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days 
and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. It's quite a lot. Quite a lot. That's the full story. And I think even though there are a lot of details in that story and some really interesting ones that on the surface aren't exactly clear what's going on, like the other tent of meeting or the shining face of Moses or boiling a goat in its mother's milk, I think the main arc is clear. I think you could see that as we read through it. Rebellion of the people, the intercession and the mediation of Moses on their behalf before God, and the restoration, the covenant renewed. Now each one of those, rebellion, intercession, restoration, each one of those deserves its own sermon. Furthermore, each one of those is further amplified in the New Testament so that they could get even more sermons. And that would be right to do. In terms of rebellion, let's think for a moment. Paul clarifies in Romans 3 that all Jews and Greeks are under sin. The golden calf, unfortunately, is not an isolated instance of idolatry. There is none righteous. No, not one. And that includes all of us in this room. Our fundamental condition is that we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. In other words, we prefer the person in the mirror over God. The most obvious and rampant idolatry today, in my opinion, is the idolatry of self That is the driver for all kinds of difficulty and the destruction of human life. It's the idolatry of the self, and it leaves us under the just judgment of God. Israel rebelled. All people, the Bible makes clear, rebel against God. It's not unique to Israel. It's not a one-time incident. This is a problem, deep 
within us. It's a human nature problem. It's a rebellion. But then comes intercession. We saw Moses' intercession as we read through the text. How does that get amplified in the New Testament? Well, the death of Jesus for sinners makes it possible for God to by no means, on the one hand, clear the guilty, while at the same time forgiving those very guilty ones who trust in Christ. Wonder of wonders. He is just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus, all because of the death of Jesus. He put Christ forward as a propitiation, a sacrifice of atonement, Paul says, so that he could be just in condemning sin, in judging sin, and the justifier of all those who have faith in Jesus. That's the gospel. Now listen to Paul in Romans 8 as he fleshes this out. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Whereas Moses says to the people in Exodus 32.30, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. With Jesus, there is no perhaps. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. With Jesus, there is no perhaps. It's done. He has mediated for you. He has interceded for you, and he is continuing to intercede for you. So that's intercession. Well, finally then, what about restoration? We saw Israel's restoration, the renewal of the covenant in chapter 34. What does the New Testament do with that? does a lot. Where there was once enmity, now there is peace. Where there was once alienation, now there is intimacy. For through Christ, Paul says in Ephesians 2, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. We have access. We have a restored relationship with God. We are members of God's family. We have been reconciled to God. And this restored relationship will be completely consummated when Christ returns and we rise again to resurrection life in the new creation. So, this trajectory, this narrative arc, rebellion, intercession, restoration, is all over the Bible. It culminates in the enactment of the new covenant, which itself is then consummated when Christ returns. That's all in the mind of God when he inspired Exodus 32 to 34. See, there's one author ultimately of Scripture, 
And so when we see all of this taking place in Exodus 32 to 34, we should have in our minds the whole picture and realize what God was doing way back then was building and building and building in order to make it crystal clear what this gospel, what this good news is all about. Now, as I said, all of those could be sermons in and of themselves. For our unit, just our unit, Exodus 32 to 34, each chapter could be its own sermon. But I've chosen to stay at the the broad level or the 30,000 foot level of this narrative arc so that I can now return to the question with which I began and address one simple question that this text answers in a most remarkable way. Why this narrative arc? What is it all pointing towards? Where is it all heading? What's the point of it all? Why the intercession and why the restoration? What's the point of it all? Well, I do hope you've kept that opening question in the back of your minds this whole time, but here it is again in case you forgot, which would be understandable. Why do you want to go to heaven? Now with that front and center, look again with me at Exodus chapter 33, verses 3 and 4. The Lord is telling Moses to go up, go to the land, go. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. Well, what is this disastrous word? The Hebrew word here actually is the word ra, which is often translated evil. So what is this evil word here? Is it not the revelation that the Lord would not go with his people? Though many of the people have been spared their life, and though they will assuredly enter the promised land, and though they will enjoy the blessings of that land, such as milk and honey, and though they will enjoy the presence of their loved ones, the fact that the Lord will not be present among them causes them to weep. For such a life in the promised land without the Lord is really not life. Now, this line of thought is confirmed a bit later in the story where Moses says to God in chapter 33, verse 15, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. If you're not going to go with us, Lord, don't bring us up from here. And again, in chapter 34, verse 9, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go In the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Moses' plea 
and the people's plea is for the Lord to go with them. It's for the Lord to be with them. For only in such a case is true life found. And the Bible is just replete with passages as to why. As to why this is such a big deal. It's just full of them. And I would just encourage you, on on your own time, later this week, track down a lot of them and just let the overall weight and impression of them affect you. I'm just going to give you a short sampling here. See, the Bible is replete with passages to the effect that God is our supreme joy, the one in whom contentment and satisfaction is ultimately found. Our heart is glad in him. Psalm thirty-three, twenty-one. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, for the living God. You ever been thirsty, really thirsty? And you take a drink of water? How refreshing that is in the moment? That's the image. My soul thirsts for God, the psalmist says. Psalm 42, 1 and 2. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. To God my exceeding joy. Psalm 43, 4. In your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Fullness of joy, everlasting pleasures in the presence of God when God is among the people. Psalm 1611. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order that he might bring us to God. 1 Peter 3, 18. That's the ultimate end of the gospel. That's the ultimate end of the intercession and of the restoration is that we might be brought to God who is our joy. And why? Why is it that way? Why is he our exceeding joy? Because knowing him In all his glory, in these three chapters, Exodus 32 to 34, gives us lots of displays of the glory of God. Because knowing him in all his glory and enjoying him in unhindered fellowship is what we were made for. That's why. The search for ultimate happiness and satisfaction and joy in anything else will simply be a massive letdown. That's not, because that's not in accord with the way reality is. God has made us for himself to be our supreme treasure. And so I ask again, why do you want to go to heaven? Taking this image of the promised land in Exodus 32 to 34, And just thinking broader, biblical picture now of new heavens and new earth, heaven, new creation. 
Why do you want to go to heaven? Would you still desire heaven if God were not there? No hell, no suffering, no tears, an eternity of discovering the new creation, loved ones all together, possessing everything, but no Jesus. Would you be satisfied with that kind of heaven? Well, I hope not. I hope not. This text teaches us, among other things, that, in fact, you would not be satisfied with that kind of heaven. Now, this does not mean that we shouldn't desire those things. (laughs) We should. Those are wonderful things. But they will only be experienced as wonderful if the presence of Jesus is the center of gravity for it all. Those wonderful things will only be experienced for all the wonder that they hold if Jesus is at the center of them. For being in the presence of Jesus will be our greatest joy. And it is the kind of joy that doesn't just restrict in, but expands out. So that all the many blessings that the Bible talks about of being in the promised land, the new creation, will be fully enjoyed, rightfully enjoyed, as God intended them to be enjoyed. The presence of Jesus is our greatest joy. We don't want heaven with no Jesus. We want to be in his presence. We long to see him face to face. He said, Moses, you can't see my face. There's a day coming when you will see his face. And we sang it. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Bring thy promises to pass. Well, let's pray. Father, we echo Moses' heart. in asking, Lord, show us your glory. And you have shown us so much already. You, in the person of your son, became incarnate, became one of us, took on human flesh. And in the scriptures, we get to see the beauty of Jesus who is characterized as full of grace and truth, full of glory. We have seen so much, Lord, and we long to see even more. We long for the day when we will see you face to face and when we will experience fullness of joy in your presence and pleasures forevermore with your people in the full enjoyment of the new creation. Yes, Lord, come quickly. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.